0: And now it is a time for a grand history lesson. Now enjoy and learn from our grand geeks.
1: Welcome to another grand history lesson out there, everybody. This is me, Jeff, your grand inquisitor. And who do I have with me today? Uh, Jeremy Sampson from D20 Adventure Realm. I'm Tyler
0: from everything. <laughs> Everything you say Well, that is quite subjective From, from what, is, what is past, what is now, and what will be
1: Okay, okay <laughs> Okay, pretty understandable All right. But anyway guys, it's good to have you guys listening to us again We are in our third installment of the Grand History Lesson And we are focusing on Tolkien Specifically, we are looking at Tolkien and his experiences in World War I and we hope to get an, an insight into how that experience essentially shaped what would be called the Middle-Earth mythos.
0: Yeah, this is our third grand history lesson. This is like a really
1: special one, too. Yes, so. it is. It's it's something I think that is near and dear to the heart of every single one of us that loves fa- loves fantasy one way or another. Yeah, absolutely. So, I mean, he may not have been the first one. I mean, a lot of people like to say that he's the grandfather of fantasy as we know it, he, but he may not have been the first, but... By God, he is just one of the best that still endures to this day. <laughs> yeah.
0: I think he's just the most, um, you know, the one that just kind of really made an impact.
1: I think so, too. On yeah.
0: everything. And it's still, you know, and, and he still makes an impact on everybody now. Like, if you oh, don't yeah. know what Lord of the Rings is, or you don't know who Bilbo or Bilbo or Frodo are, like, you know, everyone will be like, what? Like, what are you, what are you doing? Like, are you even online?
1: <laughs> so, or, you know, have you just been having your head into the sand for the last, like, 40 or 50 years or something? Yeah. <laughs> or mean, if you don't know, you know, you shall not pass. Like You yeah, shall you're... not pass. But <laughs> exactly.
2: Gandalf stealing all the experience points. Is that what you're talking about? <laughs>
1: oh, yeah.
0: <laughs> well, I mean, in a way, yeah, that is exactly <laughs> what he did. But, but, yeah. But anyways, sorry, Jeff. So we're interviewing somebody.
1: Exactly. We are interviewing John Garth, and he is just one of the most preeminent biographers and teachers out there right now that gives good inf- has given a great definitive biography of Tolkien, especially regarding his time in World War I. His particular book – let me pull it up here – is is Tolkien and the Great War, The Threshold of Middle Earth, published yeah. in 2003 by HarperCollins and 2005 – by Houghton Mifflin for the second edition. Yeah, one of the most preeminent books out there right now, as far as Tolkien's biography and his experiences in World War One and how that essentially helped create Middle Earth as we know it. So, what are the years of, about? Like, are we are we talking here? The years, pretty much, that we're following with World War One start from about 1914, when when the guns of August came, when. The conflict first started to essentially 1918 when he had the armistice. Now he didn't immediately start in the war in 1914 because at that time he was still uh, he he was still uh, at Oxford uh, pursuing his education. And an inter- and an interesting thing about it is, Tolkien did not immediately volunteer for service in the British Army at that time. Now I mention this because you have to look at this in context of the times. People nowadays have more of a loose attitude when it comes to, you know, joining the military and all that. But back in the day, you didn't dare try. I know you're looking at me right there. I know <laughs> by by which I by which I will be seeking your opinion in just a moment, actually. But back in those times to deny yourself military service would earn you scorn, not only from your family, but from your peers. OK, so when he opted to continue his education and not go forth to war, many cast a very negative light upon him, looking upon him like, why, Tolkien? Why would you do such a thing? Your country needs, needs you. Why would you do such a thing? And it wasn't something that was easy to live down, but he did.
0: Hmm. All right.
1: And, Jeremy, you had kind of a nod going on there. Yeah, I was just
2: giving you a hard time. So um, I'm a Navy veteran myself, so right. I, I was really interested in listening to... Uh, the the insight that John had about mm-hmm. that transition into that military service with mm-hmm. uh with the army and and then the uh the transitions and experiences that he had that he took with him and then applied into that that middle earth mythos yep. um so for for my perspective I, I i thought it was super cool kind of hearing the experience of someone that was uh very obviously especially in referring to the letters that um John kind of had uh, uh, the -hmm. opportunity to read through that we're here in a second. Yeah. Um, Yeah. We're going to definitely talk, talk more about that here shortly, but, hearing about those letters home between him and his friends, him and his Mm -hmm. family. And there's a lot of echoes of just military service throughout that. Oh, and also of um, escapism, like being in a really terrible situation and trying to find Mm -hmm. a way to keep your sanity under stress. Uh, And Mm -hmm. I think, um, I think part of, part of what inspired him to kind of go forth and build this entire beautiful, complex universe was the thing that he or the fact that he found something so beautiful to latch onto uh that that kind of allowed him to keep a little bit sane in in horrible situations yes. so yeah um i don't know i don't really have anything else to add i i hope everybody's excited to listen to john kind of answer yeah. some of our questions and oh yeah
1: the just the detail alone of what of what John goes into is just going to blow you guys away. I mean, <laughs> yeah. th- th- this guy fills in the cracks where you didn't even think that there was a crack existed. Mm-hmm. Actually, <laughs> that, that, that's how in depth yeah. it will be. Is yeah. there anything that people should know before we go into this interview? Well, primar- well, I mean, I wouldn't say you would need to have in depth knowledge of the First World War as long as you have probably work- a working knowledge of what exactly went into doing that which I think is is just enough for, for for you to go on to know what the politics were at the time that caused this conflict in the first place which quite frankly didn't become world war 1 until much later on it was known as the great war at the time because this was supposed to be the war that was going to end all war and of course you know you look at in hindsight it's something like that and that's just a silly notion to think of nowadays so I think primarily for the person that is going to be looking into this interview, it could help by having a working knowledge of World War I. And, you know, it could also help if you had some knowledge of, uh, of Tolkien's works, which just about, I think, just about everybody. Yeah. Ha- has I mean, do you have audience. any more notes, though? Oh, there's plenty. There's plenty more. So one thing also that we come to look at now, that was his beginnings. Remember, I mentioned that originally he opted not to volunteer for military service. But eventually, the tide just rolled against him, and eventually, he came to be commissioned a second lieutenant in what is known as the Lancashire Fusiliers in 1915, once he had completed his degree at Exeter College at Oxford University. Now, that eventually became part of the 11th Service Battalion of the 74th Brigade of the 25th Division of the British Expeditionary Force, and they were all shipped over to France to help in the war effort. So that's the particular unit that he was assigned to. Now, he was sh- shipped across the, Engl- the uh, uh, across the English uh, channel to the port of Calais in France in 1916, and then sent to the British Expeditionary Forces Base Tipo at Etaples, Soumer, awaiting summoning to his unit near Amiens. So there was a lot of downtime for him to be... To, to be relaxing and to be able to start thinking about what was going on until he was finally transferred to the trenches where the real fighting happened. There was a lot of downtime and eventually he came to serve in the Signal Corps, which gives a lot of thought behind where he eventually came, which shows how he was uh, fascinated by his languages and how it shows the the reference behind all of that. So... But one thing, you can also mention that when he was in the Signal Corps, you can imagine there was a great deal of boredom, like an excessive amount of boredom, actually. Doing these particular (laughs) signals, trying to help out your fellow teammates and everything while you're in the trenches, excessive boredom, probably would make it for for a very lethargic experience, actually, on the Western Front. So essentially, these are the beginnings of what we see with this. And eventually, he comes to be part of the war, part in the trenches, but... An interesting thing that most people don't know is that during his time at Etap, Tolkien composed a poem called The Lonely Isle, which was uh, inspired by his feelings of leaving of leaving Britain and coming to coming to the Western Front. So and and the lonely and the lonely isle was essentially was supposed to be a metaphor for the idyllic British um, um, countryside that he had left behind. But a lot of people can't help but wonder if the Lonely Isle was essentially the beginning of Middle-earth when, when you look at some of these particular um, references. Like specifically looking at the Tales of Arda, Tol Eressea, which is the Lonely Isle, which is something that he covers in his Histories of Middle-earth. You kind of see the beginnings right there, just from him being stationed right there before he is eventually deployed to the Western Front. Kind of interesting, but eventually it all comes to a head during the Great Battle of the Somme. Now, the Battle of the Somme is essentially the battle where you can make the argument that he really saw his wartime experience. Now, just a little, a little uh, background behind the Battle of the Somme. It was one of the most punishing battles of the entire war, in the sense that the British Expeditionary Force committed one of the greatest blunders possibly in the history of military history, actually. They, for the last two years or so, had been adopting trench warfare, machine guns had changed the, the role of everything, great heavy machinery, the use of Yellow Cross, great weapons of mass destruction were changing the face of it. What made the Somme interesting was the British essentially went back to the tactics of the 19th century and did an overland charge during one of these and they were massacred there is actually evidence in one book that is labeled that, that that labels just how shocked the German troops were when they looked upon this first day of the invasion. They're behind their they're they're behind their machine guns, ready to ready to fight, and they're looking at column upon column upon column of British soldiers coming out over the trench and walking over over no man's land to try to get to the enemy positions. Some of them were so shocked, like, wait, are they doing what? I mean, they're literally confused. And it costs them. The Somme would essentially be a battle which you can call it a tie. The Allies try to say that they're the victor because no real ge- ground was gained by Germany, but at the same time, they didn't really gain much on, 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 on the side of things themselves. And their losses were catastrophic. The losses were extremely catastrophic. Yeah. And essentially, Tolkien comes comes to earn his, earn his uh, wartime experience with this when he became specifically engaged upon assaults on the Schwaben Redoubt and the, and the Leipzig Salient as well as the Regina Trench during the Battle of the Somme. What does that mean? Well, essentially, you know, he's, he, you know, one thing you have to understand about trench warfare in World War I is essentially you're coming into an enemy's position, raiding trenches, but it's almost a seesaw kind of effort. You'll, you'll, see, you'll see the Allies gain one one day, but then Germany suddenly pushes back and they get it back, or they even push forward a little bit. It's almost like the Western Front, during during the Great War was almost like a seesaw, like a deadly seesaw, huh. back and forth.
2: Yeah, mm-hmm. and the way that trench warfare uh, functions is that even though. Most of it is open to the air. Mm-hmm. a lot of it has the sense of fighting underground because you can't you you might be within feet of an enemy and not know it uh, and then all of a sudden mm-hmm. you're you're face to face and you have no time to react uh it's it 's very that's right it's it's basically just stressful all the time
1: yeah.
2: no. <laughs> and and incredibly bloody because a lot of it is hand to hand combat uh mm-hmm. where you you're dealing with enemy forces that that just appear essentially. Yeah. Yeah.
1: And that, and that's not to say just the fighting part of it was just as punitive, but at the same time, I also mentioned it was part of the signal core. So there would be a lot of boredom at that, but at the same time, time down in those trenches was not, not the most glamorous of experiences either, because these were essentially parts of earth that were cut out that essentially were not given proper plumbing. So often you had, you had bodily fluids being in that same trench right there that didn't have a good sense of trying to flow them out. And at the same time, vermin uh, tended, to, tended to get in, into these places and, and really fill things out. Yeah, That's and because make it all the, the trenches worse. were
2: the only safe place on the battlefield. Exactly. So anything that was and, unlucky enough to be out there exactly. ended up in the trenches.
1: Although, by, you know, by our standards, we look upon that and we we're almost like disgusted by what we see. But at the same time, you have to look at the fact. Better than No Man's Land, where you basically had about no chance of Mm -hmm. surviving whatsoever. Mm -hmm. But at the same time... During the four and a half month Battle of the Somme, he eventually fell, fell victim to what what is called trench fever and by october uh, nineteen sixteen was taken by hospice back to britain and That would be about the limit of what Tolkien would see as far as his tour of duty during, during the during the first World War because after that pretty much he just he did not he did not return at all to the Western Front because he just was too sick. And even when he was coming before uh, tribunals to try to see if he was ready for military duty again, they just kept saying left and right, "You're you're just you're unfit for duty now. You're you're too weak." And he still felt the effects. I mean, he never truly, I don't believe would would be rid of those effects until well after his time at Oxford. Yeah, he, uh, I can definitely imagine that. So yeah, it was not, it was not something that that I mean, it's not to say that, I mean. Some people would try to make the argument that maybe Tolkien was a bit too soft being a university student thrust into a battle like that and everything. But at the same time, a lot of these people, a lot of these lads that went over to fight on the Western Front were very young. He was too. Yeah. And they came from all different kinds of, you know, walks of life. Exactly. Exactly. And this was a trying time. Most people don't realize First World War was, for most all intents and purposes, it was the first modern war as we know it. It, it it employed weapons of mass destruction it had terrorism in the fields it didn't it 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 had as much civilian casualties if not more than actual battle deaths so and he was thrust in all of this and he just and he he would feel that loss as well almost every single one of his friends that was part of that was part of his secret society at at oxford that they were together almost Every single one of them, save one, survived the war, actually Wow, he lost almost all of his friends, yeah, save one, and of course, there were a few others. his His brother, Hillary Tolkien did survive the war, but also um, c. s. Lewis would survive, and eventually they would be they would be lifelong friends later on, yep. although at the time they didn't know each other at the time it, for, for the western front, and what, what would happen there, so you got to think that not only was the loss personal to him and to his health. But to lose all of your friends like that, it's almost like you can't help but wonder but see Frodo in him for some reason with all that he lost. Oh,
0: absolutely. Go, going on that. Without you, weight and everything else. And, exactly. like, you know, this one mission, this one essential, like, reason. Mm-hmm. So, you know, and, and, this, and this amazing journey and. and uh, a, a
2: purpose that. Survival. You, yeah, a purpose that you may not actually be willing or or
0: willing but not happy about enduring yeah or uh, even just a purpose that you never thought would be possible mm-hmm. for you and how you live mm-hmm. so you know living in a burrow
1: essentially yeah. then, and then mm-hmm. finding yourself out in the trenches fighting a massive enemy mm-hmm. so exactly yeah. and but, just and just look at the hobbit holes i mean you know you can't help but wonder about the distinctions right there with that and the trenches and all that exactly <laughs> although i would much prefer a hobbit hole than I would a <laughs> trench actually yeah. oh yeah yeah <laughs> all right
0: anything else before we go to the interview
1: no, that's pretty much, that's all the beginnings that we'll have for that. And then we can delve further into some works that were eventually inspired, some immediate some immediate literary works that came out of his experiences from the First World War. So without further ado, we will go ahead and look into our interview with John Garth. Enjoy. Welcome to a grand history lesson, guys. And we are going to be looking into Tolkien and the Great War. Yeah. And uh, we have an awesome guest on. Yes, it. we do today. We have, who do we have with us? <laughs>
0: It's John Garth. Hey, John. Hi. Good to meet you. <laughs> so you you are a Tolkien historian. You have an amazing book, and you've you've done you've do- you've dove headfirst into Tolkien. He fascinated me from childhood.
3: Uh, so I read the Lord of the Rings when I was nine. Oh wow! Um, right. and that's a very early age to read it. Obviously, uh, so it, it probably had more of an impact on me than it would have had on me if I'd read it. Five years later, say, it helped to build my interests. Uh, And one of the interests that helped to build was history.
0: Wow. So, uh,
3: you know, I'm not honestly a big reader of fantasy fiction because I find that most of it just falls way, way behind what Tolkien achieves. But real history um, often has you know has parallels has has the same kind of depth obviously more depth yeah in reality but, mm-hmm, right. um yeah
0: so that's that's satisfying in the way that some of tolkien's history is too that is that is amazing um i actually very much agree with you on that and um so you, you said he's kind of well,
3: a- well if, if i can just go back to that of course he he talks about feigned history that's his preferred mode. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So so he, he uses this uh, in contrast to allegory, uh, the kind of story uh, which you can decode as being about specific things in the reader's world. Absolutely. Uh, Feigned history
0: is open to interpretation just as real history is. Exactly. Um, yeah. Uh with that I have a, just one more question about you know about with with you uh diving into Tolkien like with me I absolutely love and fascinated by uh theater and acting and stuff like that and when I was younger I, I just I fell in love with with these, some of these like plays um uh and just following up with not only just the writer but the actors and the directors and stuff as well and I just started doing my own like a little my my own little history, grand history lesson um you know when I was younger to kind of emulate and try to be able to understand these plays even more so um with you kind of diving into this history were you also doing it not only as a fan but also to, you know to maybe understand his stories a little bit more
3: i'm not sure that i would have ever made that distinction
0: <laughs> oh, <okay>. <laughs> <laughs> you know right. yeah, of yeah, course absolutely.
3: you're a fan you want to understand his stories a little more yeah don't you
0: absolutely uh,
3: so. i you know i i drew genealogies like quite a few people i'm sure Um, I I read the chronologies very, very carefully, Um, uh, the the appendices as well as the Silmarillion and so on and so Uh forth. Uh, All of it uh, helped me to understand something that was, frankly, uh, enormous and complex and sometimes enigmatic beyond the range of my understanding when I was, what was I when the Silmarillion came out? I was 11. Oh, wow. Did you read it at 11? Yeah.
0: Oh, that's so <laughs> wow. amazing. day it was published. <laughs>
3: yeah.
2: All righty. I, I was just uh, thinking about what, your comment about how in-depth the history of that world is and, and that Tolkien just kind of continually built upon it in every yeah. every piece of work that he, he released is just more and more of that history. Um, how do you think that... How do you think that it compares as you said the uh like the faint history of our own history that that really deep um of of uh I'm trying to think of the right the right term just just eons yeah. of the history that's going on and the interpretation that like you said we apply to our own history but as well to his do, do you think that that was intentional as far as trying to create as much depth and breadth within Uh, his history to be able to allow readers to get what they wanted out of it instead of what he was trying to apply to it?
3: Yes, absolutely. And it's a lot to do with perspective. There's a a very close analogy with with, uh, his landscape paintings. Mm -hmm. So if you look at uh, the painting Bilbo awoke with the early sun in his eyes, the eagle picture in The Hobbit, Mm -hmm. um, there's a vista (laughs) of mountains in the distance, misty mountains. And I, I had the opportunity to get my eye ever so close to the original at the uh, Morgan Library in New York.
0: Oh my! Oh God, that's awesome! <laughs> uh,
3: and I was astonished by how much detail there is in that mountain range that you that somehow even the best print reproductions don't convey. And it struck me that you know that there you've got. You've got perspectives, and you've got the idea of something receding into the distance. There are the multiple layers of, of these mountains, um, and becoming mistier as they <laughs> uh, yes. so Tolkien um, wanted to achieve that, and, and I'm I think it was a, a, an aim he always had, but in fact he achieved it most effectively by the sheer accident or misfortune or bad management of not completing his stories of the elder days, the book of lost tales that became the Silmarillion.
1: Yeah. Oh yes. Um,
3: So that when he wrote the Hobbit, that was there in the background. It was still a, a, a live concern for Tolkien. No one had read it. Um, when he wrote lord of the rings again it was in the background and you get that tremendous sense in lord of the rings that you're uh, you're not looking uh, as it were at a stage set with clapboard houses you're looking at the real thing and you could mm-hmm. walk past those houses into something else yeah. into the mountains say you know
2: right he had invested so much time building the world around these later stories that they, they they seem real because there is so much else behind them to support exactly. those characters it's, it, yes. and history. It's and... One,
3: one of several vital ways in which they seem real. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, 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 I, and I think that, that one of his great anxieties uh, with the Silmarillion, uh, and perhaps one of the reasons he never completed it, was that it was impossible yeah. to inject it with that same depth <laughs>
0: perspective because it stopped <laughs> year zero exactly i mean essentially how you stop 10 ten thousand years how do you yeah. just stop
1: <laughs> well i would think so especially since you can almost consider silmarillion to be almost mythology really pretty much of middle earth because you're talking mm-hmm. about the days before the before the sun when you still had the two trees still about and everything so yeah. this is like history before history of middle earth right exactly there. is that kind of a safe assumption to make right there then also of the Silmarillion.
3: Yeah. Um, absolutely. Uh, but, but Tolkien had, I think, a conflict between two, two urges with the Silmarillion. Yeah. One was to write mythology and one was to um, write, write feigned history. Yeah,
0: exactly. um,
3: mm-hmm. and, I, and I think, unfortunately, the, the two really do clash. Um, if he had been content with uh, writing mythology, um, he could have kept it sufficiently hazy to work, to give that sense of perspective uh, but because he wanted, because he knew that his elves were super intelligent plus effectively immortal
0: yeah.
3: th- with exceptional memories um, and, and exceptional commands of language and, and writing. Of course they would have recorded things actually a- as they actually <laughs> That's true. Uh, so it had to be faint history. It had to be good faint history.
0: Absolutely. Well, we'll dive more into just Tolkien and, and Middle-earth in a different episode, but this one we're going to be focusing on Tolkien and the Great War. Exactly. So, Which so, you have an amazing book about that we'll talk
1: about uh, later on. Yes, we will. Now let's go delve further into that. So we're looking at Tolkien here. Now, um, if you might share with us, in what capacity did Tolkien serve in the First World War? Give us a little, he, con- w- give us a little concise history behind that.
3: Okay. So he enlisted as a volunteer – in the new volunteer army that was set up in Britain, mm-hmm. uh, when the First World War broke out, he he didn't join up at that stage. He finished his English degree at Oxford, uh, which took him another year, um, then joined, trained for a year, and he focused on signaling okay. for obvious reasons. I mean, that, that was yeah. where you might expect his talents to come through in right. particular. Um, <laughs>
0: Signal Corps. <laughs>
3: Though they didn't, actually. He wasn't wasn't actually very good at his exams. In <laughs> How ironic. Uh,
1: How ironic. And I, think,
3: I suspect the reason is that he found it dull
1: uh,
3: <laughs> and depressing. Oh, my. Um, and then he was sent to France, to the Western Front, to the trenches, uh, for the Battle of the Somme, um, which was the largest battle the world had ever seen at that point. Wow. Um, and there he became uh, the signalling officer for his battalion of about 700 men. So oh that means that God. he was in charge of communications for this entire unit mm-hmm. um, when it was in and out of the front line. Um, and, and at any stage, that was, that's a really vital position. Uh, when, when you're in the front line, in, in the fog of war, mm-hmm. it's a major, major challenge.
0: Absolutely! Wow.
2: Yeah, being able to communicate in any sort of uh, situation like that is paramount because if yeah. if you can't communicate, you have no idea what it's the cool. enemy is doing. You have no idea what your allies are doing, and if mm-hmm. you if you don't know what that is, like you're you're bound to cause issues even within the unit itself. So especially an event
0: and yeah. something like as grand that nobody has any concept of because it hasn't really been done before. Right. Especially mm-hmm. so, it's it's crazy. Mm-hmm. But yeah. yeah. All right. Just, I, well, I, wondering... I, can I enlarge on that slightly? Oh, absolutely,
1: sure.
3: So, you know, the, the trench system would be miles deep, yes. um, and you'd have to get a message. You'd have to to communicate from the front line yeah. all the way back to um, the, the the superior units, the, the commanding units, uh, and ultimately to the the generals or field marshals yeah. who were sitting over their maps in French chateaus. Um, <laughs> they would use uh, field telephones, which were new devices that were very risky to use because they leaked signal into the earth, which meant they could be eavesdropped upon. Okay. Oh, wow. Well, uh, yeah. Yep. And they would use, technically, they were able to use semaphore or um, a light signaling um, system as well, using the sunlight. But those were pretty much too dangerous to use, because who's going to stand up in the trenches to wave flags around? Mm.
0: Exactly, <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, <laughs> Not I don't want <laughs>
3: that job. They, they, they would use pigeons, um, and they would use runners. Uh, runners, probably the, the, the thing they used most frequently. Um, and I think there's a, a flavor of what Tolkien thought about his runners. Yeah. Um, uh, in *The Lord of the Rings*, with with Pippin, absolutely, uh, uh, yes. running Minas Tirith to um, tell Gandalf what's going on That's with uh, the of Denethor. Yes. Oh,
2: love I love Pippin. I was just thinking about the, um, as far as the, being a, a signal officer like that. I'm wondering how the the codes that he had to learn or use flavored his languages that he created yeah. uh, for his for his works. I, I wonder how much of an overlap that was or inspiration there was coming from uh, coming from that type of training that he got in a very formal militaristic training. But yeah. he was able to maybe turn it around, uh, whether whether or not it applied. Obviously, with his with his degree, he already would have had a little bit of uh, knowledge and, and experience with uh, linguists uh, or linguistics. But sure. yeah, wonder if they, he used any of that
3: um a, a simple answer no um, <laughs> uh, yeah, it's interesting because I, I i think tolkien was using he, he was already inventing elvish at that stage he started um in in 1914 1915 especially yeah. um and he you know months before he started training in signaling um oh, wow. he continued to work on what he called his nonsense fairy language <laughs> um <laughs> his fiance um while he was training uh in signaling, and I think that it expresses the kinds of pleasures um and complexity uh that this this very <clears throat> basic signaling repetitive learning of 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 uh, a signaling system lacked in the same way that you might get. Um, you know, highly literate British Army officers at the time who were forced to spend their days writing out extremely formal, boring orders, but were actually brilliant poets, for example. Oh, okay. That makes
2: sense. Uh, It it certainly speaks to your comment about him not doing well on his uh on his <laughs> tests um probably because he was bored i'm sure that was it uh having all of this creativity in his in his mind and trying to get it out and he's stuck there learning <laughs> learning basic codes
3: one of one of tolkien's uh, great gifts was the ability to turn boredom into breakthrough so mm. you know the, the most famous example of that is in a hole in the ground lived a hobbit scrawled on a on, on an examination paper uh, when he was marking marking exams, which was which was the bane of his life for, for many, many years. You know, summers summers eaten up by trying to earn extra money in marking exams.
1: That's awesome. That's awesome. And it really gives us perspective and to, you know, in the capacity that he served in World War One, we certainly have that right now. Now how essential do you believe Tolkien's experiences in the Great War were in creating the mythos that we now know of as the Chronicles of Arda or Middle Earth? How much of an influence do you think the war had upon him creating that, creating that world?
3: I think it had a, a, a fundamental, a foundational influence um, that's probably more important than 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 any any details of, of influence that you could identify. Um, so you know you've got to bear in mind that when he when the war broke out he was already a medievalist he was already reading the old english poem beowulf um he yeah. was already interested fascinated by um uh, the ideas of how uh, folklore uh, myth had developed in tandem with uh, real languages um, and fascinated by the the idea that you could you know penetrate into the lost unwritten pre-literate past and and reimagine what uh the the lost tales might be that lay behind the fragments of legend and myth that we uh, that we still hold on to. Um so he had all of those things, all of those interests uh, uh, just burgeoning at the point when the first world war broke out, and there suddenly he 's encountered by uh, a world which is uh radically new, shaken into fragments that 's enough to wake anyone up yeah. um, uh, where he feels that you know things have to be said while he 's still alive um, a, a, a time when there is uh, real a real need for heroism for the kind of uh, heroism he sees in ancient literature, yeah. um, and yet which is also you know obviously very different from the kind of uh, theatre of war or battle or personal combat that, that you would encounter in ancient literature. So I you know one of my big things is I see the Lord of the Rings um, as a as a in particular um as a dialogue between you know medieval and modern uh pictures of war yeah okay. so you've got you've got um uh you know the the Rohan and Gondor scenes which are uh chapters which are which are very much you know a, a medieval idea of war but then you've got Frodo and Sam's trek into Mordor um which is largely psychological um yeah. you know uh, apart from um, uh, Shelob, hmm. um, oh, yeah. pretty much everything there uh, is is conventional. Yeah, if you if you if you count the you know the effect of the Ring on Frodo as conventional in the sense that it's remarkably like the symptoms he shows are remarkably like those of post traumatic stress disorder. Yes, exactly. Um, oh. Or, or shell shock as as oh, that was it was called.
0: Cool. your question. <laughs> I, I figured we would get there. Yeah. <laughs> yes. I figured
2: we would
3: get there. I, yeah. I um
2: yep. I had I had looked into the impacts of uh the behavior of the different characters, especially Frodo Bilbo and uh, Gollum. Yeah. Yes. And all of them at different different levels of uh, like you said very similar to PTSD or the um w- which is essentially just the the heightened uh, heightened awareness of what's going on yeah. and reactions to things in in the the fight or flight manner regardless of the level of danger involved <laughs> um so I, i'm gl- i'm really glad that you brought that up because that was something that i i kind of wanted to uh, ask if you hadn't so absolutely yeah, that, I, there's a very strong theme of stress uh throughout um Throughout those stories, I believe, and I think that's important, uh, very contemporary. Yeah, so, like so there,
3: there, is, there are psychological effects. Mm-hmm. Like, you know, Frodo yeah. says, I, n- no memory remains to me of um, uh, of grass and sunlight, words to that effect. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and that was a real problem. You know, pe- people lost the – people exposed to constant danger in the trenches, mm-hmm. um, lost the ability to draw upon the memories that might um, – Uh, 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 help them stay whole. Um, And at the same time, there are physical aspects to it, tremors and sleeplessness uh, and so on. All
1: right. Now, this poises poises a good question that I just thought up in the back of my mind right now. Um, You mentioned how much his experiences in the First World War were fundamental to his creation of this. On the flip side of that, can it be stated with certainty that had he not gone to war, in Europe that we would have seen, uh, the creation of middle earth then, or would it have been something entirely different perhaps? I think he wrote about his experiences really. Oh, he did. Yeah. So it j- I think it begs the question if he had, he not gone, would it still be the same?
3: It's, it's one of those, it's a real impossible conundrum, isn't yeah, it? Exactly. If <laughs> you, if you remove the circumstances of your own life. Um, would you be the same person?
0: Yeah, it's true.
3: Um, I think that he was – you see, the problem is he didn't even start writing um, any coherent stories before the war broke out. And it was just as it did break out that he began that. So you might say, oh, that's coincidence, Um, but Mm. it doesn't look like it to me. Um, Ah. And and you immediately see that the concerns that endure begin to rise up there. So you have – You have his elves who embody the idea of a loving relationship with the real world, with the the natural world, Mm -hmm. uh, who are meant to be – they're meant to embody kind of enlightenment that humans lack, right? So, I mean, obviously, (laughs) that lack was going on. All around him right right Um, and then he goes to the Somme and he returns from the Somme and he writes the fall of Gondolin um, in which this this world that he's been tinkering with for the past couple of years um, suddenly bursts into story uh, and the story is one of battle between those same elves and these monstrous armies that have machine-like equipment, the dragons and monsters in The Fall of Gondolin that that, that are described very much like
1: tanks. Yeah, yep,
3: absolutely. You know, the forces of evil there clearly represent the exploitation of natural resources for sheer greed, um, without any care for uh, beauty or... um, or the survival of nature. Yeah. Very contemporary concerns.
0: <laughs> Absolutely. And we have one last question, because uh, obviously there's been so many different stories, and, you know, it, it, the internet is not exactly the most reliable source, especially Wikipedia or anything. Um, so, what are some, like, we have two minutes and, and, um, what, what are some common misconceptions before we start talking about your book? Um, so what, what, maybe some of the, the, like the biggest misconceptions about Tolkien himself that you, that you kind of know about or you've kind of come to realize in the past few years. Um, well, I think that
3: one, of, one of them is the idea that his writings mean nothing. <laughs> and it's just a, a bizarre oh extrapolation from, from his comments about allegory and his dislike yeah. of allegory. Um, so so it, it becomes very difficult to... Uh, it's, it's almost unavoidable. Uh, if, if, you, if you start to talk about any relationship between his stories and what, what was going on in the world when he wrote them, um, you're accused of uh, trying to claim that Tolkien was writing allegory. Let's say the idea of Sauron as a tyrant, really emerged in 1936-1937 with the story of Numenor. And that was written at a time when the dictatorships were rampant in Europe. Yeah, right. Right? Now, to say that there was influence there seems to me to be perfectly logical and reasonable. Um, And there's no need to assume that that means that Sauron is an allegory of Hitler, right? Or Stalin. Um, The fact is he embodies things that Hitler, Stalin, Mussolini um, all showed signs of. Absolutely. right? Right? So he's a mythologization of those qualities.
0: That's so cool. I love that. Never I've thought never thought about that yeah. before. Um, can I ask this one question before we do – Oh, did you have a question? Oh, uh, I, I do. I just want to ask: Do you think that there is uh, maybe like an ending that Tolkien ever saw to basically telling the stories about his experiences? Like, do you think like maybe on the horizon he was just like, okay, that's where I can stop, or do you think he was just one of those minds that just never could? imagine you know he just saw everything infinite do do you
3: mean simply that he was going to carry on creating all his life
0: yeah yeah well you might
3: say so (laughs) Uh, it's true to an extent but he obviously wasn't going to extend it further into the future yeah um because he tried that with the the story a new shadow supposed sequel to the lord of the rings which he abandoned yeah um he had a creative itch that he had to keep scratching um and and often That came out in story. Sometimes it came out in poetry or visual art. Absolutely. Uh, Often it came out in language. And later in life, um, it it appears to me that um, uh, the urge to create became weaker. Absolutely. Uh, The the, the, the energies, the energies and the focus um, that was needed to achieve the the level that he had worked to previously uh, began to
0: fail him. Absolutely. Thank you so much for your time. I want to know about your book. You you have a book that was published uh, in 2014. And about essentially like everything that we're kind of covering in this. Uh, can you tell us a little bit more like about the book and just kind of how you got started with it?
3: You're talking about Tolkien and the Great War, published
0: yeah. in 2003, actually. 2003. Oh, I'm so sorry. 2003. 2003, 2004 in the US. 2004. Um, ah, sorry. Sorry, that's, uh, there wasn't a one in front of that. Floor. Sorry, <laughs> I apologize. But that, yeah, published back in 2004 for us.
3: So um, I became interested in that because I was reading the Book of Lost Tales, the, the early versions of the Silmarillion, um, at the same time that I was reading some fiction set in the First World War trenches. Um, and I was very struck by the fact that Tolkien was there, too, at the time when he was writing his Lost Tales, Um, and that those Lost Tales were completely unlike the classic uh, examples of literature from the trenches, literature produced by people who were in the trenches. So that would include things like All Quiet on the Western Front, um, which is internationally known, and and a whole slew of um, uh, excellent and famous uh, writings um, by people like Robert Graves, Siegfried Sassoon, Wilfred Owen, whose names are probably not so well known in the US, um, all all of which the the, the literature y- y- you can sum it up as being uh, disenCHANTED literature. Yeah, it's all about the destruction of um, how the First World War destroyed uh, myths of uh, heroism. Yeah, um, and and so on um, all all the values that had been evoked in order to get young men of tolkien 's generation to join up and fight um, <laughs> so disenchantment and disillusion uh, and tolkien doesn 't do that um, but but he, as I investigate in in my book, um, his work developed alongside his 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 created world developed alongside the his first world war experiences. Um, and you can see that again. This is a kind of dialogue between him and this this, this experience, um, where he's weighing up um, what does heroism mean. You know, do yeah. old forms of heroism still have any value um, when there appears to be no hope whatsoever? Yeah. Right. Yeah. Um, and that that theme runs all the way through from the story of Turin Turambar in. Um, in the film, really on, uh, probably his darkest story,
0: to the Lord of the Rings, and uh, the book. The book is available now, and it is unbelievable. Jeff, you've had it for years. Yes, I have. <laughs> <laughs> yeah.
1: I've, I've read that thing inside and out, over and over again, and I, it's it's arguably the one book that I can read over and over and I'll I, never I, get tired of. I can just
0: like imagine just like the bind, or like you know, just like it just falling apart. Oh, it, like, oh, can it's... I borrow it? And you're like, okay, and it just falls apart. I'm like, I've read it once or. Thirty times,
1: <laughs> but yeah, um, it's, it's it's really well worn at this stage. <laughs>
0: That's, That's good. good. Yep. But um, thank you, thank you so much. And uh, do yes. you have anything else to talk about the book, or maybe like other books, or anything else that you're working on as well? Before well, I know,
3: I'll, I'll say a bit more about the book, and then I'll tell you what, what what's in the in the pipeline. Um, I love that. So Tolkien and the Great War um, w- was based on very close and thorough study of. Um, everything I could get my hands on, uh, primary material. I, I was. I, I deliberately avoided um, repeating anything simply because it was in Humphrey Carpenter's authorized biography of oh. Tolkien. Mm. I wanted to dig beyond that. Um, so I looked at Tolkien's office service record. Um, uh, in the the British National Archive, at uh, the war diaries that were written in the trenches by uh, in his battalion and in in, in neighboring units um, I extended that all that kind of research to tolkien 's close friends um the the group. Uh, called the the TCBS, the Tea Club, and Barovian Society. So uh, Robert Quilter Gilson, Jeffrey Bates Smith, and Christopher Luke Wiseman, uh, all friends from school, who who became kind of Tolkien's first fellowship.
0: That's amazing.
3: Uh, That's so uh, cool. And uh, I managed to track down relatives of two of those um, and, in, in one case, uh, Rob Gilson's family, they had kept Rob's letters home from the trenches um, and, and from earlier in life. Um, so that gave me a marvellous unpublished perspective, not only on uh, what one of Tolkien's close friends was like, with a few insights into what the other friends, including Tolkien, were like, uh, but also, uh, you know, a personal, uh, uh, an officer's journey from being a student uh, yeah. right into the trenches of the Battle of the Somme. Um, so uh, analogous to Tolkien's own journey. Um, That's so cool. Uh, what else? Um, oh yes, right. And the clinch, <laughs> the clincher uh, was that eventually I managed to. Um, uh, Persuade the Tolkien estate to allow me to look at the correspondence of the TCBS um, and a few other First World War papers that Tolkien had held on to. Um, and that, to me, gives the story, the book, its beating heart. Wow. Um, these 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 letters are just intensely moving. Oh um, gosh. You, you're kind of eavesdropping on <laughs> conversations between the dearest friends who are facing their. Uh, worst peril
0: um, yes absolutely and
3: don't, you don't need to believe that the that lord of the rings is an allegory or that uh each of the four hobbits relates to one of the tcbs to see that there are parallels there in general terms of
0: experience honestly that's like the only word i can describe that is like it's magical that is amazing like that is unbelievable so i couldn't imagine just holding on and just reading these and just kind of feeling and kind of yeah that's, that's unbelievable
3: it was very difficult to write about sometimes yeah. uh, and yeah, also was... i mean to, to read the the um, uh, rob gilson's papers uh, 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 were immensely moving um in one of them he the, a bunch of them were letters that he wrote to uh, the woman he loved yeah. um and out of one of them fell a little brown flower that he had picked for her in a french wood and then there are letters from his family after he died and they're just just awful awful yeah uh, he, he was killed on the first day of the Battle of the Somme um, oh. so uh, I was going to say what's next in the pipeline I've just finished writing a book called Tolkien's Worlds um, which is about uh, the places that inspired Middle
1: Earth oh uh, yes and that- oh my <laughs> god I cannot
0: wait to read
1: that <laughs> I, I have goosebumps yeah, right so, now so
3: there have, there have been some books on, on, the, on the theme um, there are uh, some some Interesting, well-illustrated pocketbooks, guides to, you know, places to see uh, on on the kind of Tolkien trail um, by uh, Robert S. Blackham. um, And there's a a very sort of ruminative travelogue uh, by a chap called Matthew Lyon. uh, called there and back again um mine is neither of those things so it's really it's a bit like Tolkien and the great war and that it's a study of um you know how how tolkien's creativity worked yeah so i don't i don't just want to say you know this place inspired this place i want to say how and why um exactly. and i want to explode a few of the myths that have arisen um, about about places like like oh I don't know um, the supposed two towers in Birmingham, England that yeah. that uh, mm. are are widely reported to have inspired the two towers of the Lord of the Rings, which is all a load of nonsense.
0: <laughs> <laughs> Another mis- misconception. Yeah, that go. is amazing. Thank you so much for being here. I really we really, really appreciate it, and yes. uh, cannot wait for that book. And uh, if yeah, please please check out all of john's work it's amazing there'll be links in the article to this uh to this podcast and post on our website again thank you so much for being here thank you so much and um yeah yes we really appreciate it thank you so <laughs> much for for sitting down and talking with us today. yes absolutely this was amazing thank you
1: My pleasure. thank you all righty now uh back back to you guys and we are back and uh we got some interesting ideas to con- to continue on with this stuff. So yeah. what, what do you have, Jeremy? Well, I hope everybody enjoyed listening to John
2: kind of like talk about his experiences and reading all the letters and everything. It was pretty I don't know. I was incredibly Oh yeah. I was I was rapt. <laughs> Whatever oh, he
0: was talking about. I, I, I was, was entranced like, the entire oh, time. Wow. I will I'll not lie. I was entirely entranced. In the interview yeah. is 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 fascinating because not only is it something that, you know, he, he has essentially you studied so hard about But the mm-hmm. thing is that just being able to do sit down and talk to us about just certain little aspects and have us ask about, you know, the, the, these things and pr- Kind of bringing them to light in a more, I guess, playful educational way mm-hmm. uh, is, it, which is, which is nice because, again, this is only a small period of Tolkien's life that we're talking here, mm-hmm. and we talk to him and we're asking him about. So, like, it, it, it's insane how knowledgeable and also how like. Um, vast just a few years is that we can just talk about and nitpick essentially like little parts of it which is what i like yeah they they um, seemed
2: very formative for him even though he was older he'd been through school had a degree already yeah um i think that they the those few years that he was uh serving in the british expeditionary force were probably uh as formative, if not more so, yeah. than than all of his previous years, and really kind of guided his work absolutely, uh, especially with all the relate like the relationships that we we know about of the you know the letters going home. I know you know I kind of mentioned that earlier. Those relationships and and the storytelling uh, with sh- already already sharing those types of stories. Yep.
0: Um, and one thing, essentially now we're going to be associating essentially and just kind of building upon what he was talking about. And we were talking about um, one thing, you know, you, you just listen to the interview, obviously, if you're listening to this. Um, one thing about Tolkien is that the, the consistent thing, and I think when we continue doing this series, we are going to just con- constantly find is that. You know, unlike, honestly, a lot of authors, Tolkien was just a storyteller, not only just in writing, but just like he he lived and breathed it. So telling stories to, you know, his other fellow soldiers, uh, his peers, uh, you know, and everybody around him and creating, creating an escape for people who were essentially like what we talked about before the interview, being stuck in the trenches, being stuck in these tunnels, being stuck in a small space. These people were able to kind of live out. What it was, which was, uh, for me, fascinating, especially when we start, you know, continuing the series and talking about the actual Lord of the Rings years and yeah. and stuff, uh, which will be in further parts. Um, this was kind of uh, cool hearing him and, you know, in my head, seeing him like, you know, Merry and Pippin, you know, especially like when they're, you know, especially in the books, and not so much in the movie, just a little bit. We got a little bit of it but it it was kind of like them you know being in the prancing pony and talking and stuff like that and then they go "Oh, frodo baggins and stuff like that but like it's them kind of sitting around and and, and telling people these tales and stuff like that these little people who don't you know not not deserve but these people that you know these two characters are just yeah a a a person who is not in a place that they probably should be in that, that's completely out of their element uh, and being able to tell a story and bringing people together with either a pint of mead or not. And um, it, it, it's fascinating to me how a lot of these characters resonate with just certain aspects of Tolkien's life. Obviously, a lot of writers, especially in fiction and fantasy, they put a lot of themselves and a lot of the experiences into it. But I feel like Tolkien does it in a way where it's, it's so much more impactful and also, like, you now knowing this stuff, you can kind of, like, go back, or if I were to read it, I would actually m- also picture Tolkien in a trench, talking about these guys, talking about these amazing stories, and just talking. Um, and, and I love it. A- it makes a lot more sense, and it even shows the, uh, to me, the brilliance and the mo- this, this insane, complex mind of Tolkien by just being able... To tell a story, regardless of who he is, where he's supposed to be, where he was, where he thought he would be, and what he represents, and and it, it's and that's like little characters like that because I think we likened him to Frodo, and I think he's just every single Hobbit, essentially. Oh, yeah. A little beard. bit, a little
1: bit here and there.
0: So you know, he he puts him, he puts specific parts of himself into these onto all these characters, and it's so fascinating to me. So that's that, that's what I wanted to add on. Mm-hmm to especially talking to Garth and put it a lot more into light.
2: Yeah. I, I would say I would even go a little bit further to say that not only is he uh, part of every Hobbit, he's also part of Gollum. Uh, mm. I, I feel well, like, absolutely. I feel like there's, there's certainly a level of, um, of corruption uh, from the, the stress of war that he was probably dealing with. Yeah. And he, he, you know, again, this is just kind of me uh, spitballing here, but I, I see a reflection of what could have happened to him had he not taken certain paths, not done certain things, not taken perspectives, not gotten sick when he yeah. did. You know, yeah. there, there's a lot of uh, a lot of different outcomes that that could have happened, yep. and I. I I look at I look at the character of Golem, and after after listening to John, you know, <laughs> recount these stories yeah. and everything, yeah. I'm like, he is that's him. That and I I I believe that is actually more him than any other character. Uh, oh, and, really, and I I think he he. He reflected on the possible outcomes of that war, and Golem is the personification of all the bad things that could have happened to him.
0: That's that's funny because I see him, and I think maybe as we keep going with the series, I've always kind of seen him more like um, Gandalf. Where Gandalf mm-hmm. seems to know, he knows everything, and he mm-hmm. seems to be like, "I'm gonna be with you on this journey the entire time." Oh, I'll be, I'll be back in five I minutes. G- I, I gotta go. I, I, gotta, <laughs> I gotta, I gotta. We're all in this together. But I forgot something in the car. Um, I, I, I got yeah. a thing. I got a thing. I have a thing I gotta do. You take care of those trolls by yourself. Yeah, I'll show up when. Yeah, and um, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I kind of see him a little bit more like Gandalf, where mm-hmm. he is kind of like, you know, I'm with you until the end. Oh, there's a big monster. Fly you. fools um Mm -hmm. a lot of this i'm gonna go see saruman because nothing can go wrong there um (laughs) i see him being as kind of like this wise amazing hero to the story and then kind of being like whoops gotta go this way (laughs) um so i I don't know but that 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 is fascinating too I, I i just i look
2: at Um, And, you know, again, this is coming from from my military experience. I Mm -hmm. I was never in a in a combat or anything like that. I was lucky enough to be stationed on a ship hundreds of miles from anything like that sort of violence. But I've been in war zones and I understand stress and, and that sort of thing and how it affected me on that level. And looking at the um, the slow degradation of humanity when yeah. you are put in that situation under that level of stress, and that's like I see it. Like I said, I see that reflected in Golem, um, and and not again, not necessarily that 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 is well, Golem is like
0: PTSD
2: incarnate, right? Exactly, pretty and much, I, and that's why I feel like there there's a certain level of self awareness that went into that character. And it's reflected of the the possibilities. And maybe and potentially maybe even a little bit of recovery, like him dealing with that. Yeah. And then working his way out to eventually in some manner to, you know. As much as he doesn't uh, want to, he does help Frodo and Sam. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So I you know, that that was just something that I had never uh I had never thought before. And now I'm. That's like if anybody ever asks me again, I'm like, oh yeah, it's, this is this is how it is. Yeah, uh, I'm. Yeah, it's it was really insightful for me. I Absolutely.
0: Yeah. And did you want to talk about anything else?
2: Yeah, I I just wanted to uh, kind of bring up again the um, we had mentioned it earlier, and we had had a couple questions for John about it at the time in the Signal Corps, and how even though. Tolkien is probably, you know, he's known for writing entire languages. Yep. Uh, he's a, he is a linguist, and for the Signal Corps, to maybe have been influenced for that. And nah, that wasn't the case. But I think it it definitely gave him the outlet and uh, opening to exercise his creativity, it which definitely would which would guide element. him into like the depth of world building that he does. Uh, not only with the languages, but also just the the amazing. Um, Depth in in the different uh, the different kingdoms that are there, the the land itself, and the opportunity and time, both probably in the Signal Corps, but also during his uh, hospice care, that yes. allowed him to to kind of start building those first blocks yeah. to to Middle Earth that he would be able to like springboard off of into um, into everything else that he does. Absolutely.
1: Mm-hmm. Definitely. There, there was creative outlets all over the place. I mean, I already mentioned that he did his poem, The Lonely Isle, when he was stationed before he was even sent to his unit right there. And essentially, when he's talking about he's talking about his bucolic and idyllic homeland of Britain that he just left and everything. And he's having to face wartime right here. Now you're looking at this warfare right here, trench warfare, something that was unprecedented at this time. And he's looking at this. And then I can't help but read in one of the final chapters of Return of the King and think of the scouring of the Shire. It's like, look at how bad the Shire looked because of Sauron and all of them and how how ravaged it was. It's like, if that wasn't like a French town in Mm -hmm. 1918 near the Western Front, I don't know what is. Yeah. So that's January right there, that was, that was like right on par with what his experiences were with that. And let's be honest, you know, all the deaths that he had to see, and it's not just his friends that he lost. He probably saw countless ones die left and right. I yeah. mean, especially when it came to the Battle of the Somme. That was just like a bloodbath left and right. That takes a toll on people. And eventually you come to see that that becomes in what I like to call a cornerstone of how he created the Silmarillion. Because eventually when he comes back to Britain and, you know, he's in his hospice of Joran and where we would never he would never see active duty again, he eventually got to he, he got to strut a little bit more of that creativity within him right there. Yeah. Now while he was in recovery at a cottage in Staffordshire, he quote unquote I call it quote unquote officially began to create the Middle earth mythos because he centered his work around a book That he essentially titled The Lost Tales. Now, although these were initially supposed to be kind of like a mythology for England, they essentially became the cornerstone with the fantasy series that eventually was known as what you and I read as the Silmarillion. Hmm. And it was synonymous with the high fantasy narrative that he would create. Now, one classic story that came as a result of the Lost Tales was a story called The Fall of Gondolin. Now, this speaks of an ancient elvish city of Beleriand, which was overrun by the hellish hordes of Morgoth. Now, Morgoth essentially was the great specter of darkness that had come yeah. to Middle-earth before Sauron was even mm-hmm. was even top dog. Uh, I mean, I, I think
0: you put it into, uh, you know, in, in, in lightly terms, that Saruman is essentially Morgoth's cat.
1: Well... When the story, when, when the, in, in the, origin, in the in the original in the in the original story, if you look at the twelve, if you look at the twelve volume history of Middle-, Middle Earth, when he when he wrote that story, essentially, Sauron started out as Morgoth's pet cat. He was a huge cat, but he but he eventually evolved into like you know the great fallen fallen uh, Vella, that we all know what he is and everything. Yeah. So, and. But the interesting thing about this fall of Gondolin is, you're talking about a great city that was eventually taken over by the hordes of Morgoth, and and uh, and it's only recently been uh, given a full rendition by an edited version from Christopher Tolkien. The uh, fall of Gondolin, I believe, came out last year, if I'm not mistaken, 2018 or 2017. I'm, yeah, I'm, mm-hmm. I'm not sure. I 2017. I believe it was. Mm-hmm. And essentially, they, they give in full detail what was pretty much touched upon only in a chapter in the Silmarillion. Yeah. Now, you look at this fall of Gondolin right here. Now, we're all familiar with, you know, the Battle of Minas Tirith and everything when it comes to uh, Return of the King. Or you look at uh, or you look at Helm's Deep in, yeah. uh, in, in the two towers. These were two places that were on the brink of certain annihilation but eventually were saved. Gondolin is something else. This was a city that did not have any saving hope. It it was destroyed. The forces ah. of darkness ran roughshod over it and it destroyed. So evil wins the day in this right here. Mm-hmm. You can't help but see that, you know, I see that, that theme of defeatism and possibly a little bit of escapism right there with what Tolkien was talking about right here. Cause mm-hmm. he's probably thinking of just how badly botched the battle of the Psalm was
0: mm-hmm.
1: and just yeah. how, I mean, not that there was necessarily a victory for either side, just how terribly it was handled mm-hmm. and he can't and, and he can't help but wonder if if that he essentially was making that almost to be like a criticism of what happened to, to the bef during during the battle of the psalm right there yeah right in the fall of gondolin it's interesting yeah like that that would be the first work that he
2: does yeah, uh, yeah. or or not not first work he, he had done other poems and things like that but more of a complete story. Exactly uh, the you know the first the first one that he really went in depth in what was going on that
1: mm-hmm. as a
2: reflection possibly of of the uh, the failings uh, or just like you said that f- the feelings of defeatism uh, on the field and and knowing at some point that maybe there wasn't a way out. Uh, exactly. Yeah.
1: Mm-hmm. Exactly. Especially for one like him, you know, he's having to give intelligence through Signal Corps and all that kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. So I mean. He's looking at the writing on the wall thinking, like, oh, yeah. are we even going to be living to see another day right mm-hmm. here? Absolutely. But a more interesting one that also came out of that during his time, uh, during his sojourn back in Britain, was it allowed him to be in proximity to his wife. A lot of people don't realize just how much of, a re- uh, of, uh, of an inspiration Edith uh, Tolkien was to her husband, actually. So when he got his... So Wait, when he and, got...
0: and back then, he was already married...
1: Yeah, he, he, they essentially married. They essentially married before he went off to war, and there's like a real sad like story of what 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 the parting was that night before he had to leave for France. I mean, he basically said it. It, it felt. I don't like- think we even touched that in the interview.
2: Mm-hmm. No. Essentially, well, maybe uh, something we can uh, follow up on in a future episode. Absolutely, we could,
1: we could. Mm-hmm. But I mean, there's one, there's one quote from a letter. I, I don't, I can't say it verbatim, but essentially, he said parting from Edith that night and then having to ship off to France was like it, it, it was like death for me that night. It was like one of the most uh, worst experiences you can ever. That's ever weird, imagine. the
0: only thing I can think of in the Hobbits, uh, even Samurilian in Lord of the Rings, is the parting of. Ar, you know, uh, Aragorn. And Arwen and Aragorn, Arwen. yeah. Uh, but, right. like, even then, it wasn't that complicated.
1: Right, right, right. Because, because she un-
0: understood. She understood. She she understood, yeah, so exactly. So I, I would
2: say that um, if you're looking for a more accurate comparison, I think that she would represent the Shire.
0: Oh. yeah.
1: Like the yeah. people of the Shire, yeah, yeah. She
2: is home. She is safety. She is she is safety. She, care. she, she is, is yeah. She's I mean, the everything. Serene, yeah. She's
1: the serene English countryside. Yeah, she's the serenity Protection. of the English countryside that oh, he had that left so deep. Yeah. Ooh, ooh. I think now, I got I know, that one. Right? I think I, I know. nailed it. <laughs> now here's something. Spirit of Tolkien's in you? I can. Think I can... <laughs> now here's something interesting for you guys to to digest here. Now, an incident in a forest near the countryside hamlet of Rus occurred that would bring greater focus to this fantastical realm that he created. Edith, one day, was dancing for him in a clearing amidst sprawled hemlock, and Tolkien found her performance to be so profound that he was inspired to to write what was called the Lay of Lathian, which was the immortalized tale of how the human hunter Baron Arkamian and the semi-divine elf maiden Luthien Tinuviel. And how their trials became interwoven into a great quest to steal a Silmaril gem from the fallen Morgoth's crown. So he's Sam, essentially. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. But what he's Sam, Sam she's Rosie. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. But what also, but you know, you're mentioning the Arwen and Aragorn uh, theme right there. Baron Camion it bears a lot of resemblance also to Aragorn as well, whereas Luthien, a lot of people say that Arwen was almost her kind of like, uh, uh, almost like a like a later avatar. That's mm. the
0: weird thing is Arwen was not ever, she was never selfish. Mm-hmm. Where um, it, yeah. it, it seems that like a lot of things in Tolkien's life went on to basically be like, no, 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 I'm human. Ar- Ar- Arwen is this very strong character that I think that, especially in his earlier life, you know, we, we might find something out later, but I don't think anything in this scenario could ever compare to um, what we're focusing on with World War One. I, I sure. don't think any, I think Arwen and Aragorn come in later in his life.
1: Well, yeah, I mean,
0: they, they were they were created later on. But... No, I, I just mean like the, um, because again, like we, we've talked about all these work and why why we're doing this series. Mm-hmm stems from something that's happened or a connection that he Mm -hmm. has in life Mm -hmm. and we'll we'll also dive into obviously him and trees because that's going to come in after world war one um if if you've listened i guess if you've listened to like the dvd or the blu-ray soundtracks or uh the commentary in the movies they talk about like that's going to be later on in his life after war but like everything means something and i can't actually and i'm just saying i'm excited to find out where arwen Kind of uh, where that stems from in his mm-hmm. own in his own life, mm-hmm. right? Because when he earlier on, you're young. He just found love. Everybody's selfish. Mm-hmm. So I want to. I I do. I cannot wait till we get to a point where we find a point in his life where basically everybody is not in a selfish state. Mm-hmm. There's no war. Mm-hmm. There's no desperation. There's no nothing. So that's what I'm saying. It's like I'm kind of teasing and also getting excited for as we continue on tolkien's life mm-hmm. to find out what is his arwen aragorn separation moment mm-hmm.
1: so. right 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 yeah although you could say that that very same kind of separation moment happens with baron and luthien too actually because one has only to look at these two and see that they were very almost uncannily similar to arwen and aragorn uh and, or where is but, that in similarly Uh, that, that, well, it's, it's called, it's called the, well, it's called either the Tale of Luthien and Baron, but it's also, but it's officially called the Lay of Lathian. And essentially or Camion, he is, he is a human, he is a human hunter of one of the three houses of men who comes across the enchanted forest of Doriath, which is supposed to be impenetrable to humans. It's, they're never supposed to even wander in there because magic is supposed to wind up, um, confusing them and then they fall asleep and they're, they're never supposed to go in there. He essentially comes into this forest and he finds Luthien one day dancing just among the glades and everything. And, you know, she's so perfect and beautiful. He falls in love with her instantly.
0: Oh, okay.
1: He falls in love with her instantly. Although, essentially, what happens is guards find what has happened here, even though they, they do profess their love. She loves him upon almost first sight as well. But she they, they're brought before her king, who's who's King Elu Thingol of, of the, of the Grey Elves. Hmm. And essentially... He forbids him from even being here, but he says, "Hey, you know, you're just a human. You're not. You're not. You're not uh, worthy of my daughter and everything. So, you know, just get the hence."
0: Is that parallel to what happened with Tolkien? Was was uh, the father not keen keen on him? Not. I don't know specifically about.
1: I mean, <laughs> yeah. about that particular thing, mm-hmm. we'll but find, yeah. But maybe an, it's something
0: we'll find out uh, later. Yeah,
1: mm-hmm. but an in, but an interesting thing to mention about this is that quest for the Silmaril essentially drove the quest of what one of the main stories of the Silmarillion was about. And I can't help but wonder if, you know, essentially just like they're just like they're, their tombstone where she is called Luthien and he is called Baron. You can't help but see the parallels right there. Absolutely. (laughs) Especially with Edith, you know, doing her dance with Hemlock in the forest and, you know, Mm -hmm. and, uh, and Tolkien sees that and he's just, he thinks it's just a a most profound performance right there. Absolutely. She became his Luthien and he was her Baron like that. Mm -hmm. Although he strenuously would say later on that he never referred to her as Luthien, but it's kind of, but it's kind of a, it's kind of a, an, a, An endearing parallel as well. We can do an episode
0: on just the romance of Tolkien, Mm -hmm. of course. All course. Okay. Well, anything else, Jeff?
1: But on top of that, I think one thing also that we tend to also forget um, regarding the um, the mythos of Tolkien is the scenery and the art. Something that is very important. A lot of people don't realize Tolkien was also a great artist as well. Sure. He drew a lot of his a lot of his initial sketches became. He loved maps he loved maps and <laughs> he loved maps. With, uh, he, loved, as well. he loved drawing. Mm-hmm. One has only to look at the parallel of, of realizing that, you know, it was his 1911, uh, travel to the traveling to the Swiss Alps that have, that essentially, um, inspired the creation of the Misty Mountains mm-hmm. right there. So artwork was also very much part of an inspiration to what we have looked at with this. And on top of that, in addition to John, we also had the opportunity to interview uh, Ted Naismith, who is a fa- who is a famous uh, fine artist, yep. who has done many works regarding Middle Earth, as well as uh, works for Game of Thrones and several other properties. An amazing individual who does amazing artwork. I mean, you just look on his website, and you're just blown away by the detail. <laughs> you're blown. You're blown away by the use of color. You're blown away by just just everything. Yep. <laughs> And, the episode, and that bonus episode will come out soon. Exactly. Mm-hmm. It's just, it, it's one of those kind of things you, you, as soon as you look at it, you can't help but wonder, why was I able to ignore this for so long, actually? <laughs> exactly. It, it, it stands out that much to you, actually. Yeah.
2: And I love that, that Tolkien provided the, like, such in-depth inspiration for that type of work, because he, yeah. because he was so descriptive about his world yes. and, mm-hmm. and the different oh, yeah. regions in it and, and how it looked as, as the, uh heroes and and armies were traveling through it so mm-hmm. have yeah having that sort of reference to go off of uh, is is pretty amazing it was, yeah it was a lot of fun talking with ted and kind of getting his perspective on on the uh on the uh descriptions in the book and inspiration and everything
0: absolutely exactly All righty. Well, and on this episode, I guess we can talk about, like, what we're doing with this series. I mean, we're going to be focusing on Tolkien for a while. Like, we're we're going to have some grand sure. history lessons in between. Mm-hmm. I believe we're going to be doing D&D next, yeah. uh, hopefully. Mm-hmm. Yes, we are. Uh, you know, in the past, we did E3, and then we also our first one as well of mm-hmm. Aladdin. We have a lot more, you know, set up. But we're going to be doing Tolkien for a while, uh, coming, you know, in and out, talking to historians and getting all the information in. But a little segment. So like, what are we going to be focusing on next after the interview?
1: I think, the exce- next interview. I think essentially where we're going to be go- focusing on next with regard to Tolkien, we're going to focus on the Oxford years when he was professor and, you know, raising his family and, you know, being a, good, being a good husband to Edith and all that. And essentially looking at the post-war years, so preferably about the year 1919 to about 1937, which is when The Hobbit first came out.
0: All righty. So we're gonna be doing Oxford all the way up to the release of
1: Hobbit. So yeah, you're talking relatively about an 18 year period of history right there. So you yep. know it's a way a, more
0: than the, what we just did.
1: Yeah, exactly. Yeah. I but mean, if... I less mean violent. If <laughs> definitely, de- definitely less violent. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, dark specters are on the rise again because what's going on in Europe during exactly. the, du- during the later 30s and mm-hmm. all that. All right. So you're seeing you're seeing parallels go on again, and he is n- and he's no stranger to them whatsoever. Yep. Mm-hmm. And I'm excited about this. Yeah, I'm all very right. excited. I definitely am, too. Do <laughs> you have anything else for us, Jeff? Suffice it to say, I think what one comes away with is looking upon this, looking upon the First World War, looking at Tolkien and his service, despite the fact that, you know, he obviously was knocked out a bit too soon from his trench fever and all that, would there even be a Middle Earth had he not gone across the channel to fight World War One? And I think that's and I think that's a rhetorical question that you should ask yourself, yeah absolutely. would it would, would it even be to exist or exist the way that we know about it mm-hmm. had had there had there not been those experiences you had there hundred percent
0: righty, that's a good way to end it um we have our guests here, jeremy. where can they find you like what do you do who are you uh I am a professional dungeon
2: master and I run d twenty adventure realm and a d and d event company in orange county, so we do uh, private events, public events, special events, just D&D all over the place. It's great. So events. if you want to play, check us out. <laughs> <You> <laughs> D20 us Adventure on,
0: Realm. D20 Adventure Realm. You can find us on Facebook and Instagram. And you're a, you're a good friend and a great Grand Geek. So. <laughs> Thank you. All righty. <laughs> and, uh, of course, and then I'm Tyler from the Grand Geek Gathering, and I uh, do everything. And then uh, Jeff...
1: And of course, I am the Grand Inquisitor, but you guys know me as Jeff, and uh, I am one of the uh, founding co-founders of the Grand Geek Gathering. And when I am also not doing this, I am also a dungeon master myself, but I don't do it professionally mm-hmm. Yep. because ones like Jeremy do it far better than I do. Well, <laughs> I also want to talk about you have a master's in history, and I have a master's in history actually. I earned my my master's at Cal State Fullerton in two thousand six. Oh. I didn't get it; I, I, I didn't do it on on, on first world war uh, history though. What did you do it on? American Civil War, actually. Yeah, that's awesome. Although I did it from a, uh, another perspective. I looked at the guerrilla warfare aspect of the American mm. Civil War, mm. something that most people don't equate with, this, with the Civil War. Maybe we'll mm-hmm. find something geeky about that. But um, I think we will. Awesome. Thank <laughs> you so much, uh, Jeremy. Jeff, this was fun. Thank you for having us. Oh, and the Grand Inquisitor invites you both once again to do the next lesson when we get to that. <laughs> now, for those that are, fur- that are further interested in uh, work by John Garth, who is a teacher, researcher, journalist, scholar, writer, and award-winning biographer. He is best known for the works Tolkien and the Great War, The Threshold of Middle-Earth, provided by um, HarperCollins in 2003, the first printing, and second printing, in 2005, by Houghton Mifflin. He has also written Tolkien at Exeter College, How an Oxford Undergraduate Created Middle-Earth from 2014. His website is www.johngarth.co.uk slash... Well, do we have to do that?
0: Well, the 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 URL will be in the, uh, the in the article
1: itself. Okay. He also has a Twitter at uh, John Garth Writer. Now, suggested works for further study, in addition to John Garth, are uh, Humphrey Carter's 1977 Tolkien: A Biography um, from New York uh, Ballantine Books, and Humphrey Car- Carpenter, as well as Christopher Tolkien, were editors for the 1981 edition of Letters of J.R.R. Tolkien themselves, and the publisher is. From London, George Allen and Unwin, And essentially, those are essential primary sources when it comes to looking in Tolkien. Absolutely. His experiences in the First World War. Highly recommended to get into those. Because so we'll look into
0: those, of course, as we keep doing the
1: series. Of course. Yeah. I mean, it's one thing, obviously, to hear an historian later on talk about something. But yeah. it's something else entirely, just to get right into the works themselves. Well,
0: hopefully we'll have John back on. So
1: I really hope. He does make another appearance, because I absolutely loved hearing him. <laughs> and I look forward to being en- entranced once more. All righty. But anyway, thanks for listening. Check out our other podcasts on iTunes, Spotify, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, and all podcast apps. And check out our site, thegrandgeekgathering.com, for your for our articles, other shows, and more. You can stay updated on our Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. So come and join the gathering. Have a great week, and GGG!